The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and soon-to-be Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you as always. Good day to you, Stephen. I am pleased to actually tell you I am joining the show today from Bakersfield, California, where we will be opening Bakersfield Kern County College of Law in July. We're here talking with prospective students and prospective faculty, and I can say it's a beautiful day in Bakersfield. Excellent, Mitch, and I understand it was well attended. You held an informational session, is that right? We did, and there's, there's just, it's just so exciting to see people at their, who are at the beginning of their law career and they're just thinking about it and 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 I know we're going to get into some of the issues today of course about what's going on in the country but I can tell you that that I was asked recently do I think that we will see an impact on people attending law school based on the issues going on in the country today and it it was I was at a state bar meeting up in Sacramento day before yesterday, and one of the state bar historians was talking about the fact that the last time we saw a huge bump in people going to law school, and I, I think you and I have talked about this before, was when L.A. Law came on the television. Right. It, it single-handedly had a measurable increase in people's interest, or it caused a measurable increase. And I can tell you with just a few weeks into this administration, I believe that this will be a kind of a clarion call to people who are reminded that regardless of which side of the issues they're on, there are serious issues that lawyers get, get involved in. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, I think that's interesting. I was in law school at the time when there were some trends like that, and I remember prospective students actually citing to national events that inspired them. It's, uh, I, and empirically, I think that's true. I think, you know, there were some studies on law school uh, attendance and spikes in attendance, and it is directly connected to a lot of national issues, and obviously one of the issues that we took on last week that we'll talk about again today relating to the constitutional issues and the magnitude of the issues all centered around President Trump's uh, emergency immigration order and then the treatment by the 
sports, you know, that's the kind of thing that spikes interest in, I would assume, everyone. I'm with you on that. I, I Again, we, we try not to, to take a specific political bent on one side or other of this. Obviously, you and I have our opinions on interpretation of the law, which is what lawyers do all the time, makes it the but one of the most enjoyable and challenging parts of, of being a lawyer. But I think you're exactly right. If, if you're not brought, if your attention isn't focused on the Constitution of the United States and the issues related to our protections of due process and freedom of religion and freedom of assembly and freedom of speech, I mean, if this... If if you're not, if it hasn't gotten your attention right now, then I don't know what to say. You, you <laughs> might not have a pulse. I know where you're you going. Might not have a pulse. There no, you go. I get it. I do. And you know what else is interesting, Mitch? And I know we talked about this in preparation. So many of the stories that center around trials and legal disputes that actually end up in courts leave out what happens behind the scenes. And it dawned on me that. In this immigration order and the treatment of, uh, through the courts and what may come, we'll talk a little bit about forecasting. Those are magnificent and intriguing issues, the things like standing and the constitutional issues that even give rise to getting to the so-called merits of an issue. And I think it's great that we're able to highlight that. I, the last week's show, you know, I thought maybe we'd have one show, talk about the Ninth Circuit case, move on. But obviously it is not done. And you're exactly right. The, the fundamental questions of who gets to sue, who is being protected, is it just American citizens? Is it just residents with green cards who have a document from the country that gives them certain rights? Or is it other interested parties, people who want to come to the country, to our country, have yet to be given any specific rights by our government. Are they also covered? And all of that got discussed in the Ninth Circuit. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it is true. And, and let's, let's actually pivot into an issue, Mitch, that I think we talked about in preparation. That is, what might happen next? And I wanted to start by highlighting the executive order and maybe some of the arguments that were made, specifically the ones that referenced uh, White House counsel Don McGahn, or okay, McGahn, okay. I think it is, uh, because you know that we, we talked about that very briefly, and now it's highlighted again because many news outlets are focusing on what kind of repairs or changes to the executive order could have been made so as to obviate need for all this scrutiny. And one of the things that I think was fascinating was that uh, Flucci's, August Flucci's reference to Don McGon's uh, internal memo that okay. attempted Remind to... Remind everybody who's who. So Fuji's the yeah, on behalf of the government. Fuji did argue on behalf of the Department of Justice. And he, at one point in the exchange with the three-judge panel from the Ninth Circuit, made reference to White House counsel Don McGon's internal memo that, in, in essence, referenced uh, the fact that green card holders or permanent residents would not be impacted by the executive order. And, of course, that was met with very quick verbal resistance 
uh, pretty much a backhand, frankly. I heard that live. And then... Smackdown, some people it said. Was a, it was a, a smackdown, <laughs> yeah. And, you know... Smackdown. It, it, it was. And, you know, it's. I, I'm not sure why he made the argument, because I want to return to whether or not that even... That argument has any kind of traction. I think we're going to conclude that it probably doesn't. But what's interesting is that those oral, the, the oral exchange from the three-judge panel made it made its way prominently into print in the Ninth Circuit's formal opinion. Yeah, that, I'm glad you brought that one up. So let's kind of walk back the how they get to that argument. So Washington State, I, I assume this was part of the argument by Washington State that the executive order was uh, too broad, a yeah, too broad, too sweeping, too sweeping, right? Too sweeping, and that in being too sweeping, it it not only reached what we presume was the targeted audience, uh, terrorists from other countries, from the seven countries that were identified, but it then swept up individuals that had what they called a higher constitutional standing. These were legal residents in the United States who had valid green cards granted to them by the United States. They had met all the criteria to be legal residents. And it appeared from the, as we call the four corners of the document, by reading the document that Washington State argued it affected those people. They might be denied entry back into the United States, right? That's right. So they would be part of the aggrieved party pool. Right. And, And so the government came back and said, well, we fixed it because White House counsel Don McGahn, who's, who's counsel to the, he's a, a lawyer, uh, counsel to the White House. He's not the personal lawyer of the president. He's, it's a position. It's not a constitutional position. It's not someone that was appointed and then confirmed by the Senate. It's one of the staff that the president of the United States is allowed to hire to support him in the executive function. So he hired Don McGahn, an experienced Washington elections lawyer, is his his primary background, and he wrote a memo that said, no, that's too sweeping. We did not mean green cards. I'm making it too short. I'm sure it was a little more elaborate than that. But he said, no, no, those people don't count. But the court didn't buy it, did it? That's right. Right. So, you know, if you listen to the live stream of that, it it was uh, kicked to the curb rather, uh, rather quickly. So it almost really came off to me as, as an afterthought or a plan B or a plan C kind of argument. Uh, and it was met with immediate resistance. And it came in the form of really what you had just mentioned, uh, Mitch, and I think that's accurate. So Don McGon does not enjoy uh, the title of cabinet member, constitutionally assigned position member of uh, the White House uh, or member of the White House uh, cabinet. He, he is, in essence, uh, an, an at-will kind of employee, if you wanted to borrow an analogy. Yeah, I think yeah. you're right. So that reference, uh, you know, I think the effort may have been to somehow allow that memo to creep into the thought process of President Trump. And as you said already once, if not twice, Mitch, uh, the refrain from the three-judge panel was, well, the gone's not the president, in essence. Yeah, and I thought they were, I, I was pretty fascinated. I would recommend that anybody who's deeply interested in this go online, read this 
this written opinion from the three-judge panel. We've heard summaries of it in the news. But here's a case where they spent some time on that using in what I thought was very plain language. There was no legalese in this portion of it. Some of it was a bit procedural. But this one, they said, if that's what the president meant in his executive order, he, he need only have picked up the pen and made the change. I thought that was pretty yeah. striking. It, it reminds us uh, something that you and I talk about quite a bit is that, that words matter. Words spoken matter and words written matter. And here is a, an appellate court of the federal judiciary reminding the president of the United States that your words matter. And if you want them to have the effect of law, you need to say them in a legally correct way. And if you want to change it or redefine it, you need to say it. You can't send an employee out to the press room and say, oh, by the way, this is what I think the president meant when he said, when he wrote that. Yeah. And so they said, you want to fix it? Fix it. We won't. <laughs> they, they acknowledged he had the authority. I think that I just want to briefly go back and remind everyone that you know, there's no doubt that the president had the authority to issue the executive order. There's no doubt that under the Immigration and Naturalization Act, he can, he can enact an order that restricts immigration in certain cases. And seven presidents before him, both Democrats and Republicans, have done that. You get all the way down that line, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with, with that executive order. The details of whether it's too broad or violates religion or violates due process then becomes the part that the court's talking about. Not whether he had the authority to do it, but were the specific words he used in violation of the Constitution. I think that's right. And then I would alert our listeners to uh, the value of looking at uh, the media. And it's up to listeners to choose which media outlets they listen to. Mitch, I would humbly recommend that the best course is to really listen and read, read many of them so you can get different views. But my point is that much of the media attention now is centered on what could have been done to make that executive order uh, really less apt to be scrutinized the way that it did. And it's uh, you, you had mentioned just picking up the pen. Of course, there's a more detailed way of describing that. But the bottom line is that President Trump probably could have crafted, drafted that executive order so as to be, uh, quite frankly, airtight and not subject to such scrutiny. Yeah, and that goes back to a question that you and I talk about, the role of lawyers. You know, Don McGron and other lawyers who are should be experienced in crafting legislation and executive orders uh, need to step up. Uh, their game needs to step up. You're talking about orders from the President of the United States. They need to know the Constitution. They need to read the case law. They need to be able to craft these things. And when a court gives you very specific direction, it, it would seem to me that the good advice is to not fight with that court and call them names, uh, but to look at the law that these justices were highly respected. You don't end up on the appellate court of a federal bench by accident. Uh, to look at that and reconsider whether you can improve what you wrote. I mean, we tell that to law students all the time, and here you have the Ninth Circuit telling it to the President of the United States. Yeah. So, yeah. And when we come back after the break, I know we're getting right up on it, I, I don't forget to have us talk about there's other repercussions to that 
strategy by the government's lawyers of a, what now comes in about the president's statements. There is. There is. That's true. And then when we, when we return from the break, let's also take on the issue of forecasting what might happen next, because I shared with you in preparation that uh, one of my uh, thoughts was that it would be beneficial to have the full panel, the full complement of the Ninth Circuit. When we come back, we'll talk about what uh, challenges that presents and how exactly that comes about, because that's not an easy task. There's a lot behind the scenes. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We're going out on a short break. We will return. Please don't go away. You're listening to us over Voice America Radio. We're continuing our discussion of the immigration ban and the court's treatment and scrutiny of that ban. We'll be right back. Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law. Established 44 years ago, we are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. 
That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the immigration ban and specifically the court's ruling, the Ninth Circuit's ruling, and doing a little bit of a discussion centered around what might happen next. And Mitch, when we went out on the break, I had introduced the idea of the possibility of the full Ninth Circuit, the en banc assembly, which would be a full complement of the Ninth Circuit, uh, actually sitting and hearing this matter. Yeah, and that, let's kind of remind folks of how the process goes. You have a federal district judge who made a ruling. Uh, in this case, it was a, a temporary restraining order that that put a delay to the implementation of the executive order. The government took it up on an emergency, essentially an emergency appeal that was heard by a three-judge, what they call panel. So the, the Ninth Circuit has, I'm, I hate to say, I don't know, is it 20 judges? 23, I think. 23, okay. 23 judges, justices on it. And they get a bunch of cases, so they divide up into panels. And a three-judge panel is how they do it uh, because it also makes sure that there's not a tie. <laughs> so a three-judge panel makes good sense. They can, as the losing party at the three-judge panel, can ask for reconsideration to the full panel or a larger panel. I don't think they get all 23. I think, oh, it's, they, a, I think it's 11 or 12. Uh, yeah, I was saying the same. So they get a bunch. So it's you know, uh, they get a, a much larger group. But, but Stephen, and you're the, the procedural expert here, but my understanding is that to be able to make that request, so basically you're asking the panel of the Ninth Circuit to look at what the three-justice panel did and say, we're going to reconsider what you guys did because we think you were in error, or you might be in error. Right. So, Mitch, let's set the stage for that because there's, yeah. there's an irony lurking here. Right? Okay. I can make an analogy to, to local courts, okay, because what this entails is the full complement. In other words, colleagues scrutinizing the work of colleagues. Right. right. That's what's happening. So what happens in a local level very often, and I can draw an analogy to county type uh, judicial processes, and that would be an appeal to a county, let's say a, a conviction that results in a local superior court. It would first go to a panel of other superior court members, judicial officers of that county. So it's not uncommon at all for colleagues to scrutinize the work of other colleagues. I just wanted to get that out. Yeah, because they don't want a rogue judge or justice to head off on their own interpretation. They want the, the, there's always that, that's the due process we keep talking about. Even within the levels of the judiciary, there is due process steps. That's right. right. So, but my understanding is that in order to do that, you have to be able to argue to the rest of the Ninth Circuit that these three justices by the way, agreed three to zero in favor of the opinion they wrote, that they, and I think these are the words or the standards that have to be met, that those three justices overlooked or misunderstood the law that they applied in their opinion. Yeah, yeah, and, and right. So that's a, that's a pretty heavy lift, as you would say. It, it is, but what I'd offer 
uh, in response to that, Mitch, is that those are two categories that actually you have to click on the window because there's several factors that fall under them. So, for instance, if you looked at overlooked, I think typically some of the criteria there would be were significant facts overlooked? Uh, were certain facts considered uh, irrelevant that probably should have been given uh, more prominent treatment? So there, there's factors within each of those categories. And then misapplication is probably the one that gets more scrutiny, and that would be a very detailed look at the three justices' interpretation and application of the laws that they cited in their opinion. I, I read the opinion. Uh, I actually, although I, I disagree with many, many facets of the way that uh, hearing was handled, I do have to say that I thought the opinion was very well drafted and, and the cites were very compelling. And to me, it demonstrated very, very good knowledge of the law on the part of the, uh, the audience. And let's remind everyone, and, and I, I'm pretty sure you said this on the last show, that this three-justice ju panel could have listened to that argument. And remember, this was the argument for those who are tracking it. This is the argument by the government that the temporary restraining order delaying the implementation of the executive order be lifted so that while the regular case went on about its way, which I believe will be the end of March, when there'll be a hear what they call a hearing on the merits, back in front of Judge Robards at where it all started. That's right. That's right. That, that what was in, in challenged here in the Ninth Circuit was while that period of time till the end of March happens, should the executive order remain in place till there's a hearing or should the executive order be delayed until the hearing? And what the circuit said is the delay should continue. So the one of the issues with a temporary restraining order or a stay is there has to be a, a proof of emergency or, or immediate harm. And that that's, that's what's really the pivot point on this, not the merits, right? Uh, even the court got a little sideways on it, but they're not supposed to be ruling on the merits. They're trying to decide what emergency, immediate harm is going on, whether they either do apply the executive order or delay the application. That's right. that's right. And I think you're right to point out or to perhaps predict or forecast that ultimately there will be scrutiny on the merits, Mitch. And I think that's probably coming unless there is a redraft of the executive order, you know, which could change things. Uh, but, you know, I was previously critical of the, the court's uh, reaching the merits so quickly. You'll recall I raised that uh, when we had Michael Cohen on with us uh, when we talked about the constitutional dimensions. And one of the reasons I wanted to see the full complement of the Ninth Circuit actually preside over the matter was um, in large part, uh, Mitch, due to, well, not only innate curiosity, but my curiosity as a lawyer, I, I practice in the Ninth Circuit. Uh, you know, I'm in that jurisdiction, and it provides an opportunity for me and other lawyers to gauge how the full complement of the court will handle the issue. So I look at it uh, as really a very, very educational opportunity, quite frankly. I think I, I agree with you. It would be fascinating to see it. I, I would tell you that, again, I'm not a litigator, but just from the, an outsider looking in, 
I'm reminded that, first of all, the three-judge panel could have decided this with a sentence by just saying yes or no. And many times they do on a on an emergency hearing like this, they don't go to the effort of writing an opinion. So I think it telegraphs a lot of their thinking that they chose not to give it just a thumbs up or thumbs down and send it back to the uh, original district judge. And then they wrote an extensive order on many of the factors that were raised, and it was a 3-0 decision. So I, I would argue they've given you a, a fair amount of what you were looking for if you read the tea leaves of those of those steps they've done. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, not to toot our own horn, Mitch, but I will say this, and, and this is a compliment to, to Michael Cohen's uh, comments and really the collective wisdom that we, I think, displayed the last time we took the issue on. If you look at the written opinion by the Ninth Circuit, it's amazing how the case sites all reference a lot of the cases that we discussed within our constitutional discussion. And I, I share that really because it's so important to note the value of precedent. Cases like Flast versus Cohen, right? The case yeah. that Michael talked about right away. Youngstown Steel, right? All, all those cases were prominently featured. So let's go. Let's answer one more question that people have brought up. Uh, what what what's up with the Supreme Court? You know, the, you had rat, some saber rattling by the White House of saying, "We'll see you in court," which most likely was uh, a claim that, "Well, we're just going to take this to the Supreme Court." So first of all, procedurally, a decision from the Ninth Circuit could go to the Supreme Court, right? That, that, that right, right. That was one of the viable options from a procedural standpoint. Uh, I it looks like we're coming up on a break here pretty soon. Yeah, we are. We got about three minutes, I think. So, so let's. Oh, just, we do. Okay, got it. Yeah, we're good. Um, so, I I would argue that it, it's if it's a heavy lift to get from the three judge panel to the to a full panel at the Ninth Circuit, strategically thinking, it's it's an inordinately larger lift to get a temporary restraining order argument all the way up to the Supreme Court. Because so I think we need to remind everyone, the only discussion here is, should action be taken before the end of March? Right, because right. Because it's going to have its day in court on the merits with full briefing and a full complement of lawyers. It's going to get its day in federal court. All of this has been a discussion of, should the executive order be allowed to stay in place or be delayed until that. And honestly, I don't see the Supreme Court stepping in on a temporary restraining order issue like this, even as interesting as all these factors are. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I think if you look historically at cases taken up by the Supreme Court, you would uh, find a pretty thin or small list of temporary restraining order-based uh, cases. It's a it's reminder a to everyone that, that the it will still have its due. The The federal judge is going to make a decision. There's still going to be an opportunity to appeal. There's still an opportunity on the merits for this case to make its way up to the Supreme Court if the parties so decide. It's still there to happen in the regular course of the trial. This is all part of this emergency. Yeah, I think. I think. So, Mitch, hey, let's loop, let's loop back to uh, Don McGon's role, because I think you had mentioned that, uh, well, I think we know 
he's in the news uh, in relation to a couple other issues too. Let's kind of tease that one up to the break. Yeah, so I think there's three things we've talked about. One of them, he's been he's he was involved in writing an interpretation of this immigration ban, and and the court in the Ninth Circuit basically said, "Nice try, thanks, but tell your boss to let us know what he thinks since he wrote the original order." And again, uh, again, we're White House Counsel Don McGon. Correct. But he's also right smack in the middle of the Kellyanne Conway issue where the Office of Government Ethics has issued a letter and sent it to the White House that says, from their legal standpoint of evaluating the ethics rules, that Kellyanne Conway's comments about uh, promoting Ivanka Trump's uh, proprietary clothing, jewelry, and, and shoe line from the White House briefing room was a violation of, of a serious violation of the ethics of, the, of White House personnel. So we're not talking about uh, conflict of interest with the president. We did a whole show on that, the Emoluments Clause, and there's still plenty to discuss on that. That's but right. In this, this case, we're talking about an employee, and there's no question about whether Kellyanne Conway, who, by the way, is an attorney, so we're not talking about just a press spokesman here, not to denigrate press spokespersons. It's a horribly difficult job. But she's an attorney. So when we come back, we, you can... Let's do that. And we'll, also take on, we'll also take on the issue of sanctuary cities. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We're going out on a short break. When we come back, we will continue our discussion on immigration issues and specifically sanctuary cities. Don't go away. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy La Revere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder, what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. 
But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We have been talking about immigration issues, obviously related to President Trump's executive order and the subsequent treatment by the courts. That's led us into a discussion a little bit centered around what might happen next, and that led us to introducing White House Counsel Don McGahn in connection with the executive order and the memo that he wrote But we pivoted a little bit, didn't we, Mitch? And we introduced Don McGahn in connection with another event. Yes. So as I was saying before the break, you know, the White, the Office of Government Ethics has recommended to the White House that there be a a discipline or a sanction for Kellyanne Conway's uh, actions of uh, improperly promoting a proprietary product out of the White House. And so it comes back around to somebody say, well, wait a minute, how did we get from immigration to there? Well, that letter goes to her employer. And in this case, her employer is represented by Don McGahn. He is the White House general, uh, White House counsel. So I am presuming that that letter recommending discipline for and, and or sanction uh, is sitting on his desk for him to make a legal recommendation to her employer, who, of course, is president of the United States. So he will be right back in the middle of that. And had there not been a bit of a kerfluffle on the uh, national security advisor, Michael Flynn, oh, wait a minute, Don McGahn's involved in that one too, but I'll get back to that. Um, had there not been that, I think we would have heard more about these issues of what are they going to do with Kellyanne Conway? Generally speaking, this type of an administrative sanction is you you get sent home without pay for a period of time. You, know, you get your pay docked. Uh, you could conceivably be fired for it. That's certainly one of the sanctions, although I don't think anyone's talking about that. So we'll stand by on that one to see what we happens. Will. But so let's pivot. Let's continue the pivot around. So Don McGon is involved in the the resignation of National Security Advisor John Kelly. It turns out that the uh, Justice Department, upon receiving information about the telephone call between Kelly and the Russian ambassador back when he was merely a... Flynn Flynn you're talking about? I'm sorry. I said Kelly. I meant Flynn. Kelly's fine. 
Okay, I, th- I thought you were trying to introduce something involved no. Kelly, and now you're. I was saying, oh no, 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 you got me. I, I got, I got my, I got my administration people. I was Kelly's doing great. Lagon's, Lagon's uh, inbox doesn't need any more volleys like that. Ah, heard here first, John Kelly's. Intro- no, no, no. Simmer down. All right. <laughs> Thank you for jumping in. My gosh, we could have. I could have been on a terrible tangent there. Yeah. Heard here firsting on Wagner and Winnick on the line. I was. I was going to say, as your source, the New York Times. <laughs> okay, go ahead. I was making up our own fake news. <laughs> <laughs> this is how it happens. It starts right here. No, no. Okay, let's let's redial here a bit. So we're talking about the resignation of Flynn as National Security Advisor, and uh, it turns out that the initial information from the intelligence agencies that came through the Justice Department were delivered to Don McGahn as as White House counsel. And so that is the conversation we're just now seeing emerge in the news discussion of, as we've heard people say, who knew what when. We, we are, Mitch, but let's be equal opportunists here, and let's let's not forget that the focus is also going to be squarely placed on the Obama administration, too, because we're going to talk about practices of eavesdropping in general, right? Yes, and I, I heard an interesting story yesterday as I was driving that uh, it uh, Flynn is, has, uh, has had a long history in intelligence. This isn't his as we would say in Texas, Texas. This is not his first rodeo. You know, he, that, that he knows pronounced that. rodeo. I think. <laughs> Only in Salinas, it's rodeo where I came from. I know it is. All right. But but there's it's known by everyone, including the Russians, that that Russians posted in the United States, like the ambassador of the United States. Those conversations are part of NSA's oversight. We we've talked about once before the scope of the NSA, right? And the question is, can citizens be reviewed and monitored? And the answer is no. But foreign uh, foreign individuals who are in the United States don't have that same protection. So the Russian ambassador has no constitutional protection to not have the NSA listen to his phone calls or monitor his emails. And that's the context in which this conversation got picked up. And everybody says, well, Flynn should have known that. He's been in this business for decades. And so the record of it was turned over to the White House counsel, Don McGahn. And so he has this memo. And the question is, did he have the memo when when the vice president of the United States went on television and said the conversation never happened? Mm hmm when the White House counsel had a document that was delivered by the Justice Department and the FBI, delivered this to the White House counsel who had a memo, had the transcript of the call. So this is not a, did they say it or not? This is a question of management and who should have done what. And that comes right back on Domagon. And we don't really know what the end of that story is. And flow of communication. And that one will... We'll be learning more about that. No doubt, we'll return to that discussion. Let's let's uh, get get sanctuary cities into the discussion in the mix a little bit. Mitch. Yeah, this is this is going to be the next most. <laughs> I, I I hesitate to say the next biggest issue coming up. Who knows? On a day by day basis, this has been quite an interesting period of time. But honestly, my opinion is that the sanctuary city executive order is a much 
bigger constitutional challenge than even the immigration ban. The immigration ban, look how much time we've spent, the country spent focused on that. And yes. I, I let me just outline this really quickly because I think it really does come back into your bailiwick on due process. Uh, primarily, the, the Sanctuary City Executive Order says that the president directs the director, the secretary of Homeland Security. So this is not a judicial officer. This is an, an executive a department officer to... Uh, put as a priority the removal of individuals from the United States in three categories. One, people convicted of a crime, or illegal uh, residents, illegal aliens convicted of a crime. Nobody has any problem with that one. We could argue what crime should be at the top of the list, but those people have had their due process, right? They've been through the system, they've been convicted of a crime. The next two are the ones I, I think we're going to see discussed in the coming weeks. The second one is someone who's been arrested, but not yet adjudicated. And so I want you to come back and talk about that. But let me throw out what the third one is. The third one is individuals who are behaving in a manner that would be deemed criminal. So you teach criminal procedure and evidence. Explain to me how due process is served in someone who's merely been arrested. So the, the ICE comes into a, a room going after one of the number one category people. They've got, they've got a warrant to come get the convicted criminal. And while they're there, they round up 10 more people and arrest them and figure they'll sort them out when they get back to the station. All right, well, that, that's not a criminal offense, Stephen, right? I mean, that's just the first step. That can be sorted out. Oh, sorry, you got swept up. You get to go home, right? Well, that's not on a record. Sure. So, Mitch, a couple things going on there. Uh, the question you're asking relates directly to police and citizen encounters and probable cause and concept of detentions and detentions ripening into arrest. And the arrest standard is nationwide consistent, and it is that there needs to be probable cause to believe that a crime was committed and that the suspect either committed the crime or is connected to the crime, which leads to the next issue of what is the crime, and typically law enforcement would need to articulate the crime. In other words, apprise the suspect of what crime that is. So it, it's a loaded question you're asking in connection with due process, but all the analysis always centers on the initial approach or contact between law enforcement and the suspect. So there needs to be an articulated basis by the officer or agent uh, as to why he or she approached the person to begin with. You introduced sweeps. Okay? That's another issue that you know, a sweep is a, is a mechanism by which law enforcement will set out intentionally to look for certain people. You've heard of uh, impaired driving sweeps or sobriety checkpoints, right? Yes. So... You know, it's a little bit of a strained analogy there, but but targeting uh, individuals, so to speak, is not necessarily unconstitutional. Okay, so you make me feel a lot better on that one. Okay, so I and, and I'm glad you reminded me of that because because there is more to that arrest standard than than just sweeping someone up. What about the third one? Get, allow someone to have the administrative priority of removing them if they are 
merely engaged in behavior deemed criminal. Yeah. So now, who is doing the deeming here? Okay. So so <laughs> no. So I get where you're going, and, and 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 your introduction to that I think suggests that you think it's a little bit too sweeping or ambiguous. But fair enough. Fair enough. But but I would say that. Let me let me try to <laughs> let me offer a, a an objective response to that. So. I believe that, that that third prong is relating to the issue of detentions. And if you look back uh, historically or by precedent to a case called Terry v. Ohio, which I think you'll recall from law school, which sets out the standard for detentions, and that is still uh, raising a requirement that law enforcement demonstrate that they believe they were trying to rule in or rule out criminal activity. So there still needs to be an articulation of something more than just a hunch, Mitch. So it's, as you'll recall, evidence to believe that criminal activity is afoot. We call that afoot. In other words, objectively demonstrated. So, so I and I and I, I, when I hear you say that again, it it helps us understand why I think there may be a few exceptions, but for the most part. Police chiefs across the entire country in every jurisdiction, when asked, have stepped up and said, this application of police powers to a local police force is not appropriate and not how they want to allocate their resources and time. They have a full-time job taking care of their primary responsibility, which is the safety of the citizens in their individual jurisdiction, and they don't need to add the entire police powers of INS and ICE to their responsibility. Sure. sure. So proponents of sanctuary cities certainly argue that the effect would be that you're, in essence, deputizing local agencies to be members of uh, an immigration force squad. So and in fact, the executive order says that. It, it does have a, there's a, a specific numerical uh, reference to the cl- to the statute that allows, uh, by the choice, the option is the local police, but they yeah, can't yeah. allow themselves to be deputized to be immigration officers. No, that's true. Let, let's yeah. do this, Mitch, because it's a it's a big topic. I think we have to return to sanctuary cities and, and really start from the basics. Like, for instance, is there a definition of a sanctuary city? And I think uh, the I'm answer sure. we're going to find is not really. So I that's agree. a way of kind of teasing it. Yeah, I agree. So I'm glad you brought that up as a lead. I do believe that we'll have the next several weeks, if not months, to talk about this because it raises all of the, everything you and I just talked about goes back to our original discussion today of these are fundamental constitutional rights related to search and seizure and detention and due process. And I believe the executive order on sanctuary cities raises a longer list of constitutional questions than even the one on the immigration ban that we've spent the last couple of weeks talking about. I think, I think that's right. I look forward to talking about it. Well, so we'll do that. And then uh, I think we'll just have to take it on a week-by-week basis, Stephen, don't you think? Uh, there's no shortage of issues, right? That is true. <laughs> I'm gonna, we have just a few seconds left. I, I do want to remind you that I, these issues aren't just federal issues. I, was, I mentioned I was in Sacramento earlier this week testifying in front of uh, the Senate of uh, the Assembly Judiciary Committee and believe it or not the issue being discussed went to the question of the separation of powers between the state legislature 
and the state Supreme Court. So it's not just U.S. constitutional issues that come in play. We need to be reminded that we have state constitutions as well. Thanks, Patch. So you've been listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Reminder that you can hear an archive of today's show on voiceamerica.com business channel. As always, we remind you each week, if you don't know the law. I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandy Luis and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar, but have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. OEA.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to OEA.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. 
The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. 